I don't know if I've grieved well, but I grieved the loss of Zach as he was, and I learned the importance of lament. I just don't think we're very strong in the area of lament. I'm still in the grief process since there's no closure in ambiguous loss, so the grief just keeps going on. But if I could do it over again, I would have learned about ambiguous loss sooner. It took me five years to find something on my type of loss. So that, again, is one reason I just wanted to write the book. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Holland. Listener has been on an extended spring break, but we're back for our summer season. And today's episode features Pat and Tammy McLeod, who serve as Harvard chaplains for crew. Pat and Tammy have written a book called Hit Hard, One Family's Journey of Letting Go of What Was and Learning to Live Well with What Is. They wrote the book to tell the story about how their son, Zach, collapsed on a high school football field, sustaining a severe brain injury, and what life has been like since. It's the true moving story of their journey through ambiguous loss, both having and not having their son. Pat and Tammy hope to help others navigate ambiguous loss in their lives. You can find their book on Amazon. Enjoy the show. I couldn't put down your book, Hit Hard. I think I read it in a day or two. And it tells the story of what your lives have been like since your son Zach sustained a severe brain injury when he was a teenager. So Tammy and Pat... Can you tell us how and when you decided to write this book? So the thought of writing a book about our journey into the world of loss began early for me because from early on, I was beginning to take notice of the fact that um, God was pulling us more deeply into an understanding of who he is. Uh, basically a deeper understanding of what the gospel is. Um, Our experience of what it means to be a human. Um, All of that stuff was captured in certain, you know, significant moments. And I wanted to capture that before I forgot it uh, for my own sake, because as time wore on, there were more and more of these. And um, so documenting the, those experiences of meeting God in the midst of suffering was important to me. Um, but I think the, uh, Tammy was definitely the driving force for writing the book. And I think, uh, when she was pressing on us for, to do something like that, part of what I was thinking about is that I've got, um, three kids who've been devastated by this and, I mean, it's been devastating emotionally, relationally, even spiritually for them. And I wanted them to have a record of the ways that God met us in the midst of this, why we hadn't given up our belief in a loving God, a powerful God. And so that was, for me, the the primary reason I wanted to do this. And for me, my seminary professor, when she heard what I was studying about ambiguous loss, she said, you need to write this in a book. (laughs) So she actually assigned it for two 
self-directed classes, one to write a book proposal, and then the other to write the first few chapters. And the reason I wanted to follow through on her idea of putting what we were learning in a book is I wanted people to be able to see God's love in ambiguous loss when things are hard. And I hoped that God would use the suffering that we had been through to help other people. And I wanted people in ambiguous loss situations to have hope. And if we could help them navigate ambiguous loss better, it would be encouraging to see that God could use what we have gone through to help other people. Your book actually introduced me to that term, ambiguous loss, which is different from grieving someone who has died because ambiguous loss means grieving someone who's alive but whose life has been altered in a way that you're grieving who they used to be. Is that right? Can you tell us more about discovering ambiguous loss as a new category for grief? In the early days of Zach's injury, I had mostly grieved alone with God because I had a difficult time explaining to friends and family what kind of loss I was going through, that it was different than loss to death. And so I tried so many books on grief, and I felt like they didn't apply to our situation. I looked for recommendations on our kind of loss but couldn't find any. So I finally just called Zach's Rehab Hospital and said, Help! I don't... I can't find what I need to help me move through this type of loss. And the next day, the librarian called and said, I have a term for you. It's ambiguous loss. And when I read the articles and the books written by Dr. Boss, I thought, finally, someone understands what I'm going through. So she talks about two kinds of loss. One is when the body is absent, yet the person is psychologically present in the minds of loved ones. So examples would be those missing from war or natural disasters, kidnappings. Also in the category would be absent parents due to divorce or adoption or immigration. And then the other kind is the kind we're dealing with. When the person's bodily present but is not the same emotionally or cognitively, and examples of this would be Alzheimer's, dementia, addiction, mental illness, and debilitating brain injury. So just hearing her definition of those and how she talked about how it is different than loss to death was super helpful for me. Yeah, and I, what I would add is, <clears throat> so, you know, when Tammy dropped her research paper on ambiguous loss into my lap, we were on a retreat, and um, I, I read it, I immediately, I mean, this it was a game changer for me because it just made so much sense. Um, and what she didn't say that I'll add is that you know, Boss, who'd done the, the original sort of clinical research on, on ambiguous loss, and I think she even coined the term, um, she says that this, the key to, um, to dealing with ambiguous loss is learning how to live well with both having and not having someone um, the way you once had them. That is 
difficult just for an individual to do alone because you inevitably will probably do better with one than the other. You'll, you'll, for example, hold on to the person you have and kind of live in denial of the fact that you've you've lost someone or vice versa. And so uh, you, you, you tend to fall off on one side or the other of that. Um, and learning to live well with both, let, letting go, acknowledging a real loss, but bonding with uh, the person you still have is, um, is something that is almost unsurmountable as an individual. But, but when you throw another person into the equation and one person is falling off on one side of that and the other is falling off on the other side, then it, it makes for a really complicated life and marriage in our case. And, and uh, that's why a lot of marriages that have to deal with these kinds of losses don't do well. You know, that's one of the, I think, reasons. I think one of the most helpful things for me to hear from Dr. Boss was that there is not a linear process of letting go and rarely is there acceptance and there's never closure. And I had been trying to see if I could get closure or get acceptance, but when you actually still have the person, you really don't want to be moving toward closure. Mm. And so that was one of the most helpful principles that I learned from her. You touched on something just now that I felt like was a major theme in this book, and it's how to navigate grieving separately as individuals, but also as a couple. What would you say to other couples walking through mm -hmm. grief together, but as individuals? My first one is what we learned from our counselor. Be gentle with each other. People grieve differently. And so we had to keep saying that to ourselves as we would interact with each other. And then for me personally is don't isolate yourself. Uh, get all the help you can possibly get um, to navigate ambiguous loss. Spiritual support from God, emotional support from friends and counselors, and physical support, eating well, sleeping well, exercising well. Yeah, I want to go back to something that Tammy said about... Um, and this doesn't just apply to, I think, ambiguous losses, but grief in general. That, um, you know, I, I had heard, I still haven't read anything about this, but I'd heard about the different stages of grief that are, you know, like there's the sh initial shock, then there, people often move into this denial phase, a bargaining phase, anger phase, depression, acceptance. And uh, that sort of made sense to me. And I, but I assumed that, you know, you would kind of move through them sequentially. Um, and maybe even on the same time scale as other people that were dealing with the same loss, including, like in our case, each other. And I soon found out that that wasn't the case, that grief just doesn't work that way. I mean, some it's like our, one of the counselors that we met with for those early years of grief counseling said, it's, it's sort of like a beef stew. You, t you know, every bite you get something different in it, you know, and it's like every day you wake up and you might one day be in complete denial, mm -hmm. or you might be in bargaining, or you might be depressed, or you know, you might be excited. But so we were rarely, we have we were rarely in sync. Very few moments did we just sync up. 
those are special moments when they came. But because, I mean, you can, you can imagine how difficult it is when one of you is, is sort of in a denial phase and the other person is depressed. You can't stand being together, you know. And that's actually a lot of, this, of our early, of the early part of this story, this narrative, is that we had two very different things going on. I was pretty much in denial of the fact that we had lost Zach as he was. And Tammy was really, really deeply sad and, and going, you know, mourning the loss of a son. And uh, so it was hard to be around each other. And so, yeah, that's, that's a way of accenting her point about the general uh, exhortation I would give to anyone going through anything like this is to be gentle with one another. Uh, do your best to validate where they are. Uh, listen and just validate, even if it's not where you are or want to be. And I, I think also we both drew upon other relationships in our life that weren't feeling the pain that we were feeling as hard. You know, they knew Zach and they loved him, but they weren't his father and mother. And those people became really helpful for us because they helped absorb, I think, some of the those harsh painful, sad emotions that, you know, especially Tammy was dealing with early on. And they, and they could, you know, validate the things that I was sort of celebrating about this miraculous recovery that I was witnessing of Zach coming back and, you know, the, the, the fun things we would see him do every day that showed that there was still hope. So we've touched now on some of the different stages of grieving. And this is a topic that listeners to this podcast have asked to hear discussed grieving how to grieve well do you feel looking back or even right now that you have grieved well are there things that you would do differently if you could go back through your grief process I don't know if I've grieved well, but I grieved the loss of Zach as he was, and I learned the importance of lament. I just don't think we're very strong in the area of lament. I'm still in the grief process since there's no closure in ambiguous loss, so the grief just keeps going on. But if I could do it over again... I would have learned about ambiguous loss sooner. It took me five years to find something on my type of loss. So that, again, is one reason I just wanted to write the book. Um, And the last thing is, I wish I would have grieved more in community than alone. That was a big turning point for me when we did two different ceremonies to celebrate who Zach was and um, before the injury and who he was after the injury when we pulled our communities together and grieved together. It was helpful for our family and our communities. Yeah, and for me, I would say uh, Tammy definitely grieved a lot better than I did. And um, it took sort of that discovery of ambiguous loss and then the decision because of that to actually have a ceremony where we acknowledged that there really had been a, a significant loss. Um, that a lot, I mean, that really, that place, that space became, uh, I mean, it was, it was a powerful moment and in, in our story, you'll see it in the hit hard. It was a significant milestone for our entire family. You know, people who came to that ceremony 
were sort of puzzled initially by the invitation of like this sounds like a funeral, you know, like why why are you doing that when Zach's still alive? And he's like, but but they are, repeatedly came up to Tammy and said, you know, thank you for doing this. I needed this way more than I thought I did. Right? Was that mm-hmm. what they said? And so, um, yeah. So I, it was understand. It was that that helped me grieve. Actually, Tammy, uh, you know initiating this and, and working on it together and actually preparing for it, you know, assembling a, a host of pictures of Zach prior to his injury really helped me recognize, you know, the, the losses and putting those pictures. So I made an iMovie, actually, put, putting those pictures to his favorite songs. I wept on and off for, you know, a month leading up to that. And then I just a mess at the event itself. But it just felt like almost like poison coming out of me when I'm crying, weeping, you know. It's like this stuff is in there. This pain is in there. This loss is in there. It needed to express itself. The same thing is true of the book, like actually taking time to write write those chapters. I mean, there was one chapter I wrote in the Starbucks in Harvard Square, sitting in the same chair each day for three days, writing this one chapter. And I just was pouring tears I felt like I needed to let the people around me know that hey this is okay (laughs) it's really this looks terrible see any grown man over here weeping over a latte but it's like these are good tears what's happening right now is really cathartic I need to tell this story remember this moment and get this on paper well it's a really tender story all the way through and I know still in your lives, you know, as a, a parent, as a mom, reading what you've gone through, it I've felt so heartbroken with you. And it makes so much sense to me that it would be a cathartic mm. experience for you to actually put this, write this all down, relive it, and synthesize it into... Uh, some sort of mm. coherent story about where you've come, how far you've come. Um, you mentioned ambiguous loss several times, that that's been a really significant part of this for you. I imagine that there's um, helpful things that have been said to you and uh, not as helpful things that people have with good intentions have said. I wonder... Can you touch on what not to say to people in our lives who are experiencing ambiguous loss? Yeah, so um, I'm going to speak for Tammy here because uh, you're kind of probably picking up a little bit of the fact that I wasn't in in much of a mourning, uh, grieving phase uh, for a good portion of Zach's recovery. And uh, when people would come up to... Tammy, you know, and ask, uh, you know, obviously they knew what was going on in our life. Their question would always be, you know, tell us, how's Zach doing? You know, like what's, and uh, I loved those questions because I would love to just tell them, you know, like what he did last night that he hasn't done before, you know, and, um, but Boy, the person who connect and the people who constantly connected with her best were those who came up and said, um, you know, they would ask kind of, 
how are you? And Tammy would give them the answer that she knew people wanted, which is they wanted to know how Zach was doing. And he just stopped her and he said, no, how are you doing? I know this is like, mm. it, what, what did he say exactly? Was that it? How are you doing? And, That's all he yeah. said, one question. <laughs> yeah, and she just fell apart, you know. So, so my advice to people who are with people who are going through or living through something like this is to concentrate on them, not on the person who's been injured when you're with them. To say, how are you doing? You know, and let them talk. Just let them talk and validate, you know, all of those different possible phases of grief that they might be in and the pain associated with them. I would definitely not try them, not try to get them to acceptance or closure since it's not possible. So saying statements that would allude to that would be incredibly hard to people going through ambiguous loss. And then don't interrupt them or cut off their grieving or invalidate their loss, but listen for a very long time. I know Pat and I are saying some of the same things, but just not trying to fix the person or read your autobiography into their lives and especially be very careful with pat answers about God's will in their situation. I had some people say some very hurtful things to me about my faith and other things, <laughs> questioning it if it was enough. I did notice that it didn't seem like there was a lot of theological statements in your book about even questions like why, why did this happen? What is the purpose? Those kinds of um, spec, that kind of speculation. But I noticed that um, Pat, and this might have to do with how you mm. were grieving differently. You mentioned a couple times, times that Marty Brown had come alongside you and given you sort of this, uh, just I, it felt like raising your eyes to like okay, the Lord's the Lord's in this, but just sort of leaving it there. Um, what was that intentional to leave those sort of that that out of the book for the most part? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it Does sounds like the I'm question asking? you're you're asking is you know it, could could it have been almost. A little bit more of an apologetic of how how do you make sense of this within your well I just noticed that it wasn't yeah, overtly yeah. that yeah I mean it I do think that even though it's not overtly that yeah that the story sort of speaks for itself I think I mean there, there were a few things that have been taken out of the book that I think were probably you know we want this we want this book to uh, get into the hands of people who don't necessarily, who aren't incredibly religious and don't necessarily uh, consider themselves Christian. And, um, and I think there are certainly stories I could tell, you know, of mo moments of, you know, where I had, in one case, it was probably the closest thing to a vision that I've ever had in my life um, that was profoundly reassuring, a moment of, of remarkable clarity for me that, that God was in this and, and something was happening. Um, those were have been tempered a little bit just 
in, in part to appeal to not over spiritualize it for those who who uh, you know that might be you know not what they could absorb. Uh, but still, I think there's enough of a story there, and especially those moments with with Marty that just show anyone who's reading this that there's a bigger story than the small stories of our tragic lives, you know. And and I, in fact, the small tragedies of life beg for a bigger story that can make sense of them. And I think that that message comes through in different places, not in your face, but it's sort of like if you. You know, there are just a, a few places where I think that people are getting that. And you're right. This isn't just a book about grieving. This is there's also an element that this book is about mm-hmm. football, right? Um, a couple of weeks ago, my eight year old son was playing soccer in the front yard and you know, took a ball to the face and came in with a severe bloody nose and eventually passed out from the bloody nose. And I had just read your book. And so, of course, I'm thinking, does he have a concussion? Is mm. is there a head injury here? It's fresh in my mind. And this is a really mm-hmm. touchy subject that gets more and more press all the time, this topic of head injuries in sports. So what is the current conversation in your family in light of everything that you've been through surrounding football and other contact sports? Though I loved watching football before Zach's injury, I don't like to watch it anymore. It's just too difficult for me knowing from research that brains are in danger. And then I'm also heartbroken about how Injured brains can destroy marriages and families. So we decided to go watch the movie Concussion. And the thing that stood out to me wasn't actually the injury to the players themselves, but it was watching how the marriages and families were torn apart by the head injury. So in my opinion, the game of football is not worth losing a son's potential. Uh, Pat still watches the game with Zach and sees a lot of pros in the sport, so I'll let him share his view. We have a fight about it in the book. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Actually, so the first draft of this book uh, was sent back by, by the publisher because she said, we, need, we want more football, we want more, like, fighting uh, we've got, you know, we have some great stories already about incredible kids, you know, and even theodicy. How do you make sense of God in the midst of suffering? Uh, but we want to know about how ambiguous loss works its way out in a in a in a family, and we want to we want to hear the fights and the arguments and stuff like that. Well, this is certainly one of the arguments <laughs> that we had no problem reconstructing, but wasn't in the original story. I don't think was it, because we have it all the time, and we still have it. Um, I, I mean, first of all, let me say this. The, the, the situation of football and sports-related head injury uh, was definitely in the backwaters of mainstream media coverage when Zach was injured. Like this, but even though there were a few research scientists doing uh, stuff on CTE, but they, they were just a, a small group of them and maybe a few 
NFL players who are sounding the alarm that something's wrong with their brain, you know, and it, they know it had to do with football and they know that that uh, this has been known for a while and nothing was being done about it. And so, but they were being silenced and still many of them are being silenced, but you can't watch a game today without an NFL game without concussion coming up somewhere in the conversation, the protocol, the t- the uh, some of the... Um, the commercials that the NFL is now doing is just showing that the cons- that they're aware and concerned about playing the game as safe as it possibly can be played. There's sports talk radio that comes up there. There's there's uh, several um, documentaries that have been done. There was the movie Concussion. So it's like at a completely different place, and the, and there's no question that there's mounting evidence, not just about the, the, the you know what happened to Zach was. R- was and always has been a very rare event. I mean, rarely do people have an, a, a traumatic brain injury playing a game. In fact, people were shocked in the, in the uh, intensive care unit that Zach's injury was a football injury. They, 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 were, they thought it was, would have been soccer because occasionally you have people diving into, into goalposts and that that's why they end up there, but never a football injury. So they were shocked, but... Uh, and I and I still think in in many ways that was just a, a crazy sort of like accident. Uh, but what is is be, is it's becoming more and more clear that these it's these subconcussive uh, events that happen in football that the just banging of each other's head that this, uh, not really creates a, a full blown concussion but uh, contributes to CTE later on in life that really does mess people's life up. So first of all, I just want to get that on the table that, that we are at a different place. I still, and every year I feel like I'm more and more concerned, like should we even be watching this? Like is, is this um, immoral that we, we now know enough to know that this, this shouldn't be being played? Um, it's like watching gladiators. I feel like that is, you know, if anything, I'm moving in a spectrum in that direction yet. Um, there's an argument still for this game that is very compelling to me that you know has to do with we live in the most radically individualistic culture that's ever existed on this planet and you have this one game that has this incredible ability of pulling first of all just the teams that come together have this these various like body types and and abilities a, a broad spectrum of them that are needed in order to make a team great and so there's a diversity of participants and coaching staffs and all this stuff and then they put a you know a face mask on so you can't even see their face and they're just out there working to get so they're kind of hiding their in some ways their egos behind this mask and working together as a cohesive unit to like win a game and they learn discipline and dedication and they this work ethic and toughness and uh that's a pretty amazing thing for a human being to experience in today's world that's so radically individualistic to what it's like to be a part of a team like that. Um, I think that, and then, and then you extend that beyond the team to the communities that form around, you know, the fans, that, the fan base that comes around everything from a high school team all the way up to college and professional teams that, that just spawn community you know, it's it's. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Like I was at a game, I stepped away from the stands, and was standing 
next to this total stranger in a it was at the end of the game and it's like who is going to to win and all of a sudden they our team we were both rooting for the same team we hadn't even said anything to each other and our team scored this goal and we just screamed and we looked at each other and we hugged each other and i'm like i don't even we both felt i think awkward after we had done that but it's just like you share these experiences around this crazy thing that actually form communities and connections that are part of what it means to be a human so so there's something in this game that i wish you could keep uh, and and um, you know, with with and this and the brains are still safe. I just got called by a media outlet to see if I was going to vote in favor of the bill that's being passed in Boston. No tackle football before eighth grade, and. If one thing is really clear, it's that young boys shouldn't be playing. So I really think it's a great bill just mm. to say that let's not play tackle football before eighth grade. And Pat even says that it's not really necessary. Uh-huh. It's not like a skill sport where you need to start when you're three or four. <laughs> so I'm really hopeful that we'll protect the little ones. Yeah. I think I mentioned earlier my kids love the NFL, all three of them. And it's something we look forward to all year is the season coming up and everything about it. I mean, isn't their tagline Mm. NFL is family? I think that's their actual, and for us, it really is. And, um, and our eight year old does play flag football and loves it. It's his favorite. It's his favorite sport. He does some other sports too, but Um, At the same time, we've made it really clear in our family that the boys can't play tackle football. Mm. And yet here's this sport that that totally brings us Mm -hmm. together as a family for half the year. Mm -hmm. So I feel that. I see both sides. I want to circle back to something you shared right at the beginning, which was that part of the reason that you wrote this book was for your kids. And I wonder, have they read the book? And what, if so, what has their feedback been? Nate is a writer. He's 25 now, reading screenplays every day for his work. He read our initial manuscript and ripped it apart. (laughs) He said, oh my gosh, Dad, stop with the run-on sentences. And then he said, Mom, would you please write more? Say something. (laughs) So he was so fun. He read the whole manuscript in its early stages and helped us to be more real and authentic as we're writing and helped us make things clearer. So we're so grateful for his help. And Soren. I'll tell that story. Um, did you say anything about Chelsea? Not yet. I don't think Chelsea's read it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think she wants it, but we haven't been able to get her a, a version of it. Um, Soren. Okay, now this is gonna. <laughs> this is gonna be hard to talk about. So Soren uh, and Zach. We're definitely uh, practically inseparable. 
I mean, I have tons of pictures that I took of them wrapped up in each other's arms in bed. Um, Zach was... Zach was Soren's like. Um, I mean, he was just his... He was just a great brother. And it's too bad that this isn't developed. We wanted the kids to write the book with us. We actually pitched it to them, and they kind of nodded, but they were, like, not able and never did follow through on it. Nate, I think, would have, would like to write the whole book <laughs> by himself <laughs> and probably should someday. Um, so this is why when... So Soren is in his, you know, sophomore year of college, and we had just submitted the, the manuscript. And he, he, as soon as he was done with his finals, he said, I want to read it. And uh, so he did. He read it in two days. And right before we left for Africa, we were having dinner. Nate was home for Christmas. And he uh, raised his glass to us and proposed a toast. And he did, and it was like, you know, he's a person of very few words, but he just said, I, I just want to congratulate mom and dad on the book. I read it. I really liked it. I feel like you really did a great job. And so, um, that to me was like awesome. I mean, he really, he, he loved it. It connected with him. He thought it was just a fair treatment too of our different, uh, experiences with Zach, as well as our different views on the game of football, and what about Zach? Is he at a place where he can really grasp that you've written this book? He doesn't have much short-term memory, but we keep telling him that we're writing a book, and every time we tell him, he's shocked. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also really excited. He's going to be with us at the official mm-hmm. book launch at Tyndale, and uh, you know. I don't know that we've even read him. I think I read him one of the chapters. Um, but yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in Zach's mind. And um, you know, I don't. I don't think he's he he doesn't see himself that that much as disabled. Like he just is going on with his life and loving people he's he's the most i mean he's an amazing person to sit with at church because he just is he he listens to and understands everything that's said he comments at the at the most appropriate times when people really should be commenting and and uh you know he does (laughs) and people love it it's been really healthy i think for our church to have like amen and it's kind of like an amen or or uh what (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like when, when they say something sarcastic or, you know, he like, and then everyone laughs when they hear him give the response that they're all feeling, but they don't feel like they can voice mm-hmm. that feeling. Well, I have already recommended your book to many people because it touches on so many important and difficult life topics. And in the back of the book, I love that you have a recommended resource list and you also have other really practical sections, including meeting God in the midst of pain and loss and resting in scriptures for times of loss. So Pat and Tammy, where else would you point us for resources 
that will help us be equipped to be the kind of humans who can survive hard hits. First for me is the Psalms. I would just say stay in the Psalms and cultivate intimacy with God because prayer, Psalms is the prayer book of the Hebrew people and it's full of lament. Um, The Psalmists were honest with God and real. They poured out their hearts to him, wept before him. So I just started reading the Psalms again every day. I was in the Psalms for about seven years every day but then I took a f- few years of a break and I just started again a few days ago. So amazing. And then secondly, as far as the word would be to just make sure not to only try to get through the word quickly, like some people are trying to read through the Bible in a year, but to also have the slow meditative reading of the word. Um, Lamentations is great, a whole book on lament. Job, you can see suffering doesn't always come from sinning. And then the Beatitudes. Um, For me, silence and solitude is really important. Retreats. I like to get to the beaches or the rivers by water, even if all I can do is get to a window and look out at a tree. (laughs) So nature. Um, And then for me, the prayer of examine is really, really helpful. At the end of the day, looking back, with God over what was life-giving and life-thwarting. So I do that every night before I go to bed. And then just some theological issues to think about ahead of time. Suffering's not always preventable. Um, Then the paradox of absence and presence. A lot of times we want to live in certainty, but I think we need to become comfortable with uncertainty and mystery and doubt. So if we think about these things before hard times hit, I think it would be really good to have a theological understanding of suffering and mystery. And then hope. The last thing I wanted to say is I definitely look at that differently than I did before. So in ambiguous loss, you need new hopes and new dreams since happy endings are rare. So hope to me now, the only thing that I've seen as I've studied that through scripture, through the loss of Zach, is hope in God, hope in his promises, hope in his word. And I really can't find anything in scripture that's outside of the focus on God for hope. Um, So I agree with what Tammy said about uh, God's word and particularly the Psalms. I actually do think the instruction we get from just the fact that 40% of the Psalms are lament is that you pray. I mean, it's a prayer book. You pray your feelings of lament, you know, that these really are emotions that we can bring to God and meet God in the midst of them. And that's definitely, you know, a a theme of our book. Um, And then secondly, I actually doing a study on the Beatitudes was profoundly important for me. This was before Zach 
was injured, I actually was studying those and just like, what in the world is Jesus saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Like how, how, that's a total oxymoron. How happy are those who are sad? Um, and so as I reflected upon that and like, what is it that, you know, he seems to be saying there and I, and I, it came, I came to the conclusion that the, the reason we can experience like joy or uh, sort of this um, connection to this consolation that's in, in God when we're mourning is because it does bring us more deeply into the, the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. And um, that's ended up being what from the beginning of this began to happen as I just began to see. In fact, ironically, that comes out in the book. There's a moment where we show up at a prayer meeting that was done by the people who, who um, well, the, the school itself, they had hosted this this prayer meeting. And we were I was such a mess emotionally that I told them I didn't think I could say anything because I was just, I had fallen apart earlier that day. Um, and uh, when the, a guy got up to talk about Zach, he, t- he said, you know, uh, first of all, he talks about how Zach was, you know, like this guy that didn't have any original sin. He's the one exception to original sin. This was, this was a, a high school kid saying to all of his classmates, <laughs> quoting, uh, you know, Augustine and stuff like this. It was, it was, that was extraordinary, actually. And, and then, then he said we, he was on the bus going to a game with Zach in the springtime of that year when they were playing lacrosse. And Zach had fallen asleep with his Bible on his lap. And when his Bible slid off his lap, the guy picked it up and started reading where he left off. And uh, Zach was reading the Beatitudes. And he, and he said, I just want to read these to you. And so he read that Beatitude. And when he did that, I was just like, that was, again, another, one of those moments of God just sort of showing up and reminding me uh, that he's in this and that, you know, that there is a way in which what we were experiencing was just bringing us into a deeper understanding of the gospel. And just one more thing I wanted to add to resources to help survive hard hits is relationships in the body of Christ. So the first part of how I answered you was focused on God, but I think people are just so important. 71 and others in the scripture. So telling stories, listening to people's stories, uh, group spiritual direction. Um, And then for me, not just connecting with people who are alive, but also um, people in the past, so writers who help me find language. The three people that I read the most during this time were Sitzer, A Grace Disguised. These three are still alive. Uh, Wolterstorff's Lament for a Son. Just amazing when he lost his son in a mountain climbing accident. Sitzer had lost his mom, his wife, and his daughter in a car crash. And then Nowen, um, Henry Nowen wrote the book Adam, and that book gave me language for disability. So 
hearing other people say sentences that could help me relate to what was going on in my life. So when Sitzer said, sorrow is now like the islands. No, sorrow is now, instead of like the islands, like the sea. It gave me a picture of um, how to express my sorrow in the early days. I needed language, so reading really helped me with language. If I asked you, how are you doing today at this place in the journey and with this book coming out, how would you answer that question? Well, I say I would say there's certain things about and this this goes to how we've had such different experiences with Zach and um, there's ways in which Zach is to me what I always I, I mean I remember when he was a little kid and I would read to him uh, in bed and one day one night I said Zach can you this is like when he's you know seven or eight years old I say can you make me a promise? He said, what, Dad? I said, that you'll never grow up. And, um, you know, there's, those are some of the, the richest moments of my life as a parent were those moments like that or when we were, when he just got out of his car seat and he could actually sit in the front and he would lean his head, put his arm on my shoulder and just lean against me as we drove down the road. It was completely unsafe, but in Montana there's no, no cars, so it's not, not, I would let him do it. But I was just like, this is to me a taste of heaven, you know, being with my son. And, you know, now every time I get in the car and we drive, <laughs> if it's more than a five-minute drive, you know, he'll be over with his head on my shoulder. And... In church, you know, he that, he's there with me that way. So we, you know, we, he's in that way so life-giving to me. Like I love Zach. He's the, the highlight of my week is seeing him. But, you know, as it comes out in the book, the next highlight is when he's kind of taken off my hands because it's, a, it's so demanding to take mm-hmm. care of him. And, and I'd say that's on the negative side, like, and this is what I'm, this is the, the the really hard part about ambiguous loss, like Tammy said, is there's no closure. Like he's not getting better. Uh, I mean, he's get, he's getting slightly better in a few areas, but it's like there are also new challenges with him right now. Like he something's going on with him medically, with his sensation of having to go to the bathroom that just makes him constantly feel like he's got to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And it's like these are the things that become so wearing on people who are dealing with an ambiguous loss or like an aging parent or something like that where they just feel like this is not going away. It's not going to just wake up tomorrow and it's be gone. Um, So that's me. Just to unpack that a little more, Zach needs 24-7 care. So people sit with him round the clock. So someone in his group home sits right by his bed and walks him several times a night to the bathroom. So there's an awake overnight. And so like Pat said, when he walks in the door on Sundays, it's so exciting to see him and I'm hugging him. And But then one minute later, he's choking at the table and I'm afraid he's going to die. And can we get him to the ER fast enough? 
So it's good and hard. And for me, the toughest area, there, Boss talks about six areas we need to work on to be resilient in ambiguous loss, and one is revising attachment. So we're still attached to Zach, but we have to revise how we connect with him. For example, before Zach and I used to sing and play worship songs together, he taught me most of the ones I know. And now his right hand doesn't work. So he plays the left hand, so he still remembers all the chords, and I play the right hand. And then I sing, but he can't sing, so it's just me singing. And we're trying to get to the guitar from two sides to play it together. <laughs> uh, but we found a new way to do this. And biking, he used to rip around the corner of our street. He almost got hit several times. He was crazy on his bike. So he did, he was a great mountain biker. It was one of my favorite things I've ever done with him, even though he took me to the top of a black diamond. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> So now he can't ride his bike anymore. So someone brought over a tricycle, a really big adult tricycle. And we put him on that. Now he's just tooling around our neighborhood on his <laughs> tricycle. <laughs> so we so have to find, find different, different ways, ways of being with Zach. And since he can't talk, he could type things on his iPad, but most of our being with him is just sitting in silence or sharing the same silence. So hard things, but also great things. Thank you so much for writing this book and sharing this part of your journey with us. And is there anything else that we didn't get to that you would love to share with us? I have a question for you. Okay. <laughs> Do you, was there any particular story that you really enjoyed in the hit hard that st mm. stands out? Probably the part about um, South Africa that mm. you mentioned that a lot as mm. a really significant part of your family, mm -hmm. your family story but also of Zach's story and yeah. then how that stayed. I mean, Zach wanted to go back. He did go back. There was something about that that was meaningful to me. And then the, the South African boy, that yeah. connection, I can't remember his name, but he, but he was there the first time and then he was there mm -hmm. afterwards too. And I guess just the continuity of relationship yeah. yeah, there was seemed really special and meaningful. Yeah, I think we renamed him. I think it was Jojo. JB. Oh, JB, that's right. <laughs> uh, it could have been JB. I, I have to look at the story. I forgot which one we put in there. Yeah, there were there were some real characters in there. <laughs> that's neat. That's neat to hear. I'm glad that <laughs> connected with you. Mm -hmm. I guess the last thing I would want to say is most people in this kind of situation with a lot of trauma end up losing their marriages. And so I'm just hoping for people to stay together because things like this could drive people apart. But to 
just keeping gentle with each other and for each other and grieving with each other and listening to each other and staying together um, through tough times. Yeah, that's good marriage advice for me right now. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, being so gentle. I, yeah, <laughs> actually, I love it.